Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 128 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Haley Goodrich, a fellow entrepreneur and anti-diet dietitian. We chat about her path from disordered eating to intuitive eating, how she opened her own health at every size dietetics practice, the challenges of transitioning to a completely weight-neutral paradigm, and the value of mentorship in that process, and also the role that anxiety played in her eating behaviors, and so much more. I can't wait to share a conversation with you in just a moment, but first I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Valeria, who writes, Hello, Christy. Thank you very much for what you're doing. Your work is incredibly precious. I I started approaching intuitive eating five months ago, and I come from a past of severe anorexia nervosa, and I'm having a lot of difficulties in finding my balance and my happy place with food. I'm now no longer underweight, but my eating habits are still really messy. I can't understand the difference between a binge and an overeating episode, and I end up uncomfortably full at almost every meal. I try not to judge my hunger and accept my fullness, but it's hard. My dietitian suggested me to try having a more scheduled meal plan, but every time I try to follow a meal plan, I feel restricted, I get anxious, and I end up overeating and binging. I also don't know if I should fight the urge to binge or follow my desire to eat, and if I should teach my body what and when to eat or accept its cravings. I expected a ravenous reaction by my body after anorexia, but I didn't expect it to be so long and so difficult. Just to clarify, I eat at least X calories per day, my body often suffers from my eating habits, and I'm not okay with where I am. It's not about weight anymore, it's about doing what's better for my body. Will my hunger normalize by itself, or should I do something to make it more balanced? So thanks, Valeria, for that question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice from your own treatment team. So yeah, restrictive eating disorders pretty much always cause problems with your hunger and fullness cues in the sense that you might feel completely disconnected from hunger and fullness, or you may feel them sometimes, but they're not consistent. And when you're recovering, that can definitely lead to some uncomfortable feelings of fullness. So I just want to highlight that, you know, and let you know that what you're going through is really normal. And it's great that you're trying not to judge your hunger and trying to accept your fullness, because that is a huge part of recovery. So if you can keep Keep working on that. It'll help your body learn to trust you again. Because if you listen to last week's episode, you heard me say that body trust is a two-way process. You know, you have to learn to trust your body, but your body also has to learn to trust you, that you're not going to restrict it or deprive it again. So that goes for diagnosed eating disorders as well as all kinds of dieting and disordered eating. Any form of restrictive eating tells your body you're in a famine, and it needs time to learn to trust that you're not going to put it through another one. 
So rebuilding that trust between you and your body is key. And the way to do that is to really give yourself what you need consistently so that your body can begin to trust, you know, that it won't be deprived again. And so specifically in answer to your question, I'd really recommend honoring your cravings and not trying to fight your body's urge to keep eating. And actually scheduled meal plans can help with that in some cases. Like if you're in the habit of restricting at some level, even a subtle level that you don't necessarily recognize as being restrictive because it's not as restrictive as you were in your most restrictive days, but it's still diet mentality, it's still restriction of some kind, if you're doing that at some level throughout the day, it's going to lead to a greater likelihood of binging at night. And so a meal plan can actually help you remember to eat more food more frequently during the day so that you're not actively being deprived every single day. And over time, this will help reduce the urge to binge without your actually having to fight that urge. So the urge will really dissipate as you become consistently non-restrictive. So working on that is the key to reducing those urges and that it's not a matter of fighting or willpower. And so just judging from your question, I have a hunch that you still do some low-level restricting throughout the day just from, you know, how you're sort of framing things. So it really could help to give yourself reminders to eat enough. But if you do try a scheduled meal plan with your dietitian, I'd really recommend making it your minimum. So like at a minimum, you're going to eat X number of times a day. And if you're hungry before the next scheduled time, then of course you'll also eat then. So it's like helping you keep eating a minimum number of times, but also telling you that you should go above that if you need to, right? Or if you want to. And by the way, that's really the purpose of meal plans in early recovery from restrictive eating disorders. They help you not restrict. They help you eat enough. That's their purpose. So that's why I always quote Evelyn Triboli saying that people in early eating disorder recovery really need meal plans as a nutritional rehabilitation before they start trying to do the full expression of intuitive eating so that they can learn what it feels like to eat at regular intervals and to not let themselves get ravenous from restriction. So learning that is, you know, Evelyn likens it to putting a cast on a broken limb, a broken bone, so that it can heal and eventually resume its original function. Right. So you don't want to try to put pressure on the broken bone before it heals because it's not going to work and it'll probably just make things worse. So at this stage in recovery, I think a meal plan sounds like it's probably a good thing for you rather than full on intuitive eating and really like just eating by your hunger and fullness cues because it sounds like you're not really there yet. But just know that any meal plan that feels restrictive is not doing its job because its job really is to help you not restrict. So. I think being on a meal plan and, and talking with your dietitian about this would be a great idea. Talking with them about whether they can create a meal plan for you that's not going to feel restrictive. And to your point about how much you're eating, I want to say that the seemingly large amount of calories you mentioned, which of course I'm not going to actually say that exact amount here, so don't worry <laughs> anyone listening, but seemingly eating a large amount of calories is very common for people in recovery from restrictive eating disorders because basically the body gets so robbed of energy by restrictive eating that it shuts down many of your essential biological functions and also your sort of nice-to-have biological functions which is why some people with restrictive eating will feel cold all the time or tired all the time or have brittle hair and nails or have their hair fall out or miss their periods or have low thyroid or other hormonal abnormalities or get stress fractures, right? So all of these things happen when you don't have enough energy coming in from food. And in prolonged cases of restriction, your body even starts to, this is scary, but 
that break down your internal organs, including your heart, because your body needs to use them for energy because there's just not enough coming in if you're in that restrictive place for a long time. So I forget where I first heard this analogy, but some eating disorder expert came up with this and they said that, you know, it's like if you lived in a wooden house with wooden furniture and a wood burning stove as your only heater, right? And suddenly you ran low on firewood in the middle of winter and you couldn't get more firewood. So what would you do? Well, you'd have to start burning the furniture, right? That's probably the first thing to go. And then once you're through the furniture, you're going to eventually have to start taking down beams from the house and burning those for firewood, right? So that you can keep warm and survive through the winter. So that's really what happens to your body with restrictive eating, whether that's a restrictive eating disorder or just chronic dieting and deprivation. Your body is like the house and food is like all those different types of wood, right? So in recovery, you not only have to replenish the firewood that you use every day for survival, but you also have to get enough wood to rebuild all the things that you had to burn in absence of firewood, right? So rebuild the beams of the house that you took down. That's the most essential thing, right? First and foremost, you know, rebuild those beams and then rebuild the furniture, right? Which is like those non-essential functions that I was talking about, which are nice to have, but like, you know, body temperature being regulated and not being fatigued all the time and having nice hair and nails, right? And having your hair be not falling out. You know, those are sort of the the furniture, right? The things that are that make your home or your body comfortable and feel good, you know? And then the essential functions are kind of like the beams of the house, right? And so that would be things like your hormonal function, your reproductive system, right? That's like the not the support beams of the house, but maybe some of the more outermost beams. And then, you know, going to the more essential beams, right? Like a support beam would be your heart or your lungs or your liver. Those are things that start getting broken down much later in the process because that's when you're getting to like emergency level of starvation where you need to start breaking down things that are actually really useful and important and keep the house standing, right? So when you're getting back from those prolonged cases of restriction, you have to bring all of those things back online, right? So you're rebuilding the beams, you're rebuilding the furniture, and for your body to do all of that, you need a huge amount of wood, right? In this case, food coming in because to bring back all the biological functions that got damaged by restrictive eating, it takes a huge amount of energy because you're not just warming a fully built and furnished house with firewood. You're also rebuilding the house and the furniture, right? And, you know, all of the wood that was in it that you took down and burned. So you need more wood than someone who'd never had to break down their furniture and start dismantling their house. And so, you know, if you're living on a street with a bunch of other houses, right, and you have all these shipments of wood coming to your house every day and they're just getting periodic shipments of firewood, you can feel kind of weird, right? You can be like, why am I having to have so much wood delivered to my house? And all of these other people are just going about their day with their firewood and it's just fine, right? But you know what? All these other people didn't go through what you went through right? They had adequate supplies of firewood the whole time. They didn't have to start stripping down their house and dismantling their furniture and stuff to keep warm and survive, right? So their reality is different from your reality right now. And you actually have greater energy needs than someone who had never had to start breaking down their house for, for energy. So, you know, it can definitely be physically uncomfortable to eat as much as your body needs right now to sort of bring back all those biological functions, bring them back online. But rest assured that you're not harming your body by doing this. You're actually helping it, even if it makes your digestive system feel really weird and uncomfortable for a while. Like, it's still not 
a bad thing for your body. It's actually what your body needs. And so eventually, after your body has rebuilt what it needs to rebuild, you won't need as much wood being delivered to the house, right? You won't need as much food every single day. You'll be like that fully built house with all its furniture, and you'll go back to just needing a steady supply of firewood to keep you going. You won't need to sort of do that really intensive work of rebuilding forever. But it'll take a while to get there. So I know in the meantime, it's uncomfortable. And whatever you can do to give yourself compassion and support as you sit with that discomfort is going to be really important. So having therapy alongside of work with a dietitian, I think, is really key here. And if you can do that and sort of move through the discomfort, it's going to be so, so worth it because you're going to get back the full expression of your life, the full quality of your life. And you really eventually will get to a place where you can honor and trust your hunger and your fullness and your satisfaction in a way that you would have been able to, you know, as a kid before the eating disorder even came into play. So I hope that helps. And if you want to ask a question of your own for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, visit christyharrison.com slash questions. We're brought to you today by M.M. LaFleur. If you want to look impeccable at work but have better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, the solution is M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur is a women's workwear brand whose mission is to take the work out of dressing for work. The best way to experience M.M. LaFleur is through their bento box. All you have to do is take a quick online survey, and an M.M. stylist will work one-on-one with you to create a personalized box, including four to six wardrobe items and a few accessories. They've got both plus sizes and straight sizes, which is why I love spreading the word about them and why I'm so psyched they're supporting the podcast. Once your bento arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on at home before deciding what to keep. You won't be charged anything up front, and you'll only pay for the items you keep, and shipping is even free both ways. It's not a subscription service, so there's zero commitment, and you've got nothing to lose. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O dot com. I also want to tell you about my brand new online course, which is Master Your Anti-Diet Message. This is a mini course for fellow health and wellness professionals who know that diet culture has controlled the conversation in our field for way too long and that it is high time for a change and we're the people who can make that change. So if you're ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health, start advocating for non-diet approaches that truly help your clients' well-being, build a thriving brand that magnetizes clients who are ready for change, and help them break free from dieting and disordered eating for good, this is the course for you. You can learn more and sign up to master your anti-diet message at christyharrison.com message. That's christyharrison.com message. And now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Haley Goodrich. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Uh, I love this question. I'm a longtime listener, and I've always thought about how I would answer this. And I'm just going to do my best. But I think I had a fantastic relationship with food when I was younger, like pre-middle school. All foods were always available in our house, really anything that we wanted at the grocery store or wanted for dinner. My parents never you know, said anything good or bad or, or none of that dialogue was ever introduced to us that young. My parents both worked full time, but my mom still almost always had dinner on the table. So 
it was a great relationship. Some things I specifically remember is breakfast was huge for us. And my dad would come and tuck my little sister and I in each night in our rooms, individual rooms. And when he would come in and tuck us in, we would ask, what are we having for breakfast in the morning? <laughs> and that was what, like, the high, like the end to our day to ask our dad. And he just being the dad he is would always say something like, oh, we're going to do frog legs tomorrow. And it was just this like, joke that we giggled about and then would go to sleep. And then sure enough, every morning, you know, we would get up and have dinner together with my dad specifically. And one of my fondest memories was cinnamon toast. And this is where he would make this toast slathered in butter and then the cinnamon and sugar on top of the toast. And it's it was just so comforting and something we had almost every single morning. I remember that so fondly from my dad, too, actually. It's funny that you mentioned that because I haven't thought about that in years, but my dad used to do the same thing. Like he would make butter slathered toast with cinnamon and sugar, and that was a sort of a special treat for us. But it was it was so incredible, and I have this very vivid memory of it that like I hadn't really remembered until you just said that. So, Oh, my goodness. Madeline moment. That. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And we, you know, we would always have eggs or cereal or something else with it. It was it was really remarkable when I think back because I mean I don't know a lot of families that that do that today. It's it's more of like how fast, you know, can we get out the door? And I I started with a relationship with food as far as kind of cooking even pretty early. I remember I must have been three or four. I don't even know. I can remember making my first bowl of cereal and I can remember I was so proud because I was going to do it by myself and then go tell my mom. And I poured the milk first <laughs> and then tried to pour the cereal on top. And of course, it just floated on top and, and kind of went everywhere. So it didn't go as planned. But that's my earliest memory of cooking. And it, it did it did improve from there. But <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Being in the kitchen and having agency in the kitchen seems like it was available to you from a young age. Yeah. And I, oh, I, I love that, that memory. Things went pretty well until middle school start, you know, things started to change for me there as as I started to change, as my body started to change and another kids around me. And I just wanted to fit in. And I didn't realize what was happening that early, not until I had done work down the road and discovered my anxieties and perfectionist tendencies and needing so badly to fit in and be accepted. But at the time I just knew I looked different. I have very fair skin. I have quite a few freckles, blonde, thin hair, just things that were different from kind of that athletic popular build that a lot of the other girls were getting. And I think that's when my body insecurity started. At this point, I didn't do anything to change my body. I didn't even really know you could. And I wish it had stayed that way. I still ate what I wanted, never really thought any different. I think I just, my self-esteem started to really dip there in middle school into high school. Were you ever teased or bullied or anything like that? Or was it more just internal comparisons? No, I think it it started. I mean, I had very fair skin. So it was, my legs were very white and couldn't tan. And I don't know, I grew up in that age where that was the cool thing to have the darkest skin possible. And yeah, the jokes and the teasing were there. They were there. And I can specifically also remember just a few other things. I was pretty smart. So I, you know, was in some of the more advanced classes. My mom was also a middle school teacher when I was in middle school. And that was mortifying at the time. Now I wish I had seen how awesome she is because she was way cooler than any of the other teachers, but I was too embarrassed and 
just, you know, lacked self-esteem to even realize that. And I think all of that just started to create the perfect storm. And I, you know, going into high school, I still didn't didn't necessarily do anything to try and change my body, but this is where the talk kind of started. Size comparison of friends, friends talking about, well, I fit into this size or I'm not going to eat this for lunch or let's do this. You know, the, the talk started then and quite a few of our parents had been on the diet roller coaster. And so that was always in the back of our minds. But I think that's where it where it all started. And I started to lose me. And I don't even know at that point if I'd ever actually figured out, I'm sure not who I was or or anything, but I think I really lost myself then. I just got done reading Brene Brown's newest book. Oh yeah, I just bought it. I'm excited oh, to jump in. You're going to love it. And one of my favorite quotes, I'll go ahead and say it. She she says that she started to engage in every self-destructive, dumbass behavior that you can name short of drugs. And that was partying, perfectionism, people-pleasing, trying to prove yourself and pretending. And that when when I read that in her book, I I thought... That is exactly what happened to me in high school. Self-destructive, doing things that were completely out of character for me and just trying to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how those things go together, right? That's the trying to fit in can so easily lead to self-destructiveness when the culture around you is telling you what's cool is self-destructive. Yeah. And thank goodness no one actually ever explicitly asked me to probably to do drugs. I'm not sure what I would have said. You know, now that I think back, I they, you know, I I followed the pack and did all kind of things that I am not proud of or shouldn't have done, and started dieting, um, picking apart my body, talking bad about other people, trying to fit in in groups, just you know, the typical high school thing. But you know, I, I was struggling big time and not understanding that I had an anxiety disorder. I had no idea what that even existed, or that's what was the source of a lot of my problems. As I went to college, I remember not understanding why I was failing tests my freshman year. I would go to class, I would study for hours, and I would get the test back and completely fail it and not understand why. And I remember just being so upset, having that huge fear of, I'm going to fail college, I'm going to fit in nowhere, I'm going to disappoint everybody. And I didn't know that I had test anxiety. I didn't know that <laughs> now, you know, after doing so much work and looking back, I can remember my parents always telling me I was the the baby in the high chair that the second it would start thundering and lightning outside, I would grip the side of my high chair and like grip my teeth together and just overly stressed immediately. So it's interesting when you when you look back and you hear some of those things, um, stories being told to you from when you were little. Yeah, I feel like mental health issues aren't really there's such a stigma on them, I guess, in our society that people aren't recognized for having their particular mental health makeup as being what it is at the time. It's sort of like there's a lot of self-stigmatization, like, why don't I fit in? Why can't I do this stuff that everybody else seems to be able to do? That was a huge one for me. It was like, you know, I also have anxiety and I'm highly sensitive and things really stress me out, too, that maybe don't stress other people out as much. But like, I was always like, why am I such a weirdo? Why am I afraid of loud noises? Why can't mm -hmm. I be out with my friends for hours and hours without feeling like I want to just like crawl into a little ball and hide and later on in life was able to recognize oh there's like this particular sort of makeup that I have that doesn't lend itself well to some of the things that like adolescents are pressured to do or 
kids are pressured to do. And rather than sort of acknowledging like I'm a different breed or I need different things and that's okay, myself and everyone else around me was sort of just like, well, here's the stuff you're supposed to do. Like, just do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I very much identify with that, you know, the sort of idea that like from a young age you were different and you didn't recognize that as a gift or as something you could work with or something you could accommodate. But it was like, why am I not like everybody else? Totally. And sort of assuming what everybody else is like, too, because as I've gotten older and started to talk with people about this stuff, I've realized, oh, a lot of these other people that I thought had it all together and were sort of paragons of normalcy actually have their own issues, too. Oh, totally. Absolutely. That definitely resonates with me. It's so true. So I guess as I went into college, I gained a little bit of weight, nothing out of the ordinary, just probably finishing growing into an adult body, like not a child-sized body. But I, of course, saw this as pretty much a failure or something that made me ugly or you know, just another reason I didn't fit in. And I was really struggling with what am I going to do with my life? You know, All the same things that, as you were saying, most people are probably struggling with. But for me, it just felt so... I felt alone and like there was no way out. And I think that's when I I thought, you know, had the bright idea of let me get a personal trainer. And we you know went to a couple sessions with her, took her you know, quote unquote diet advice. And as expected, with your first attempt at a diet, lost a few pounds, which I know as as any of you can imagine, any listeners who have listened for a while, maybe it was reinforced. All all the compliments and this someone who so badly wants to be perfect and liked and recognized, this just fuels the fire to get that acceptance, you know, what you've been looking for. So all these tendencies shifted straight to, well, I can perfect this. I can do this really, really well. I can eat perfectly. I can, you know, perfect my body and things will be okay. Had you studied nutrition in college? Were you on the path to becoming a dietitian at the time or was that later? Good question. I was actually pre-med. So my bachelor's is biomedical science. Yeah, I had this prestigious... I wanted to... you know, I need to be pre-med. I, I need to do have the best profession that I can have. And I, I did love medicine. I, did, I do love the human body and anatomy and the, the science behind it just fascinates me. So you know, I wasn't far from my calling, but just not quite there. And yeah, I think that's where my crisis started to hit. I started to get toward the end of college and I was just really struggling through, you know, controlling food and and exercise and didn't know what I was going to do with my life and that's when I went after I graduated I actually went back to school to do my DPD program or or for dietetics because at that time I had thought, well, this is something I've become an expert in. I can definitely help other people to eat as healthy as possible. You know, my definition of health then was was very limited, non-flexible, rigid, and I thought that's what health meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like probably any dietitians in the audience will feel them will find that familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, that was for sure my motivation too when I went back to school to become a dietitian. It was like, you know, I want to. I mean, there was part part of it for me was that I had also overcome or was sort of recovered enough from an eating disorder. But there was also the piece that was like, I now want to pursue holistic wellness and quote unquote real food, be part of the real food movement, you know, the Michael Pollan sort of um, early days of that and and was drawn into dietetics for that reason. But yeah, it was it was very much from a place of like, let me 
take this knowledge that I have and this perfection that I'm aiming for or achieving in my eating, quote unquote, perfection, and like impart it to other people rather than, oh, shit, I have a lot of work to do in my own relationship with food. Totally. That was not in the picture yet. <laughs> totally. I can remember going into it before ever even taking a, you know, my first nutrition class thinking this is going to be a breeze for me. I mean, how could I not know? Like I already know everything about nutrition. And this is also where this like cognitive dissonance was starting to happen because on the the one hand I had I guess like my day eating. This was like my perfect from the outside eating and and running and working out and then I also really enjoyed cooking remember from a lo- from an early age and I enjoyed food and baking and I enjoyed craft beer with my friends and wine tasting and and all these things and it was this complete like battle going on in my head the conscious part of me was go toward dietetics this is something you've perfected you can do this and you know that part of me that so badly wanted to come out and and just be Haley couldn't because I thought that's wrong. You know, that that's wrong. Yeah. I went through most of my dietetic and DPD courses with that same mentality, getting deeper and deeper in the perfectionist as I learned more and more about calories and all the, the traditional, more teaching figure of a dietitian weight loss model. I started, you know, the, per- the perfectionism side of me was really getting in deeper there. And, and then that cognitive dissonance, you know, I was on the other hand, had met my, you know, now husband and he's a very normal normal eater and loved the food scene and loved going out and tasting beers and things like that and so I was really in this very confusing place in my head but being that people pleaser I sided more with the nutrition side you know this is what I have to do really just two different people I would say yeah you know that's interesting I feel like I've seen that quite a bit in my work in the nutrition field, people doing doing work to sort of toe the line in their day job and then like really cutting loose in the evening or off work hours. And sometimes it's like just about, you know, going out and drinking a lot and like having a great time. Like that was part of the culture at a couple jobs I've had was very much like that. And then, you know, sometimes it was also people would make little comments that I really picked up on because I was very attuned to the stuff by that point, even when I was working in sort of a public health nutrition field, I would hear people be like, oh, don't put those cookies near me or they'll disappear. Don't, you Mm -hmm. know, I can't have a bite of this cupcake because I'll just eat the whole platter or whatever. And I was like, oh, Okay, so these people are making their their sort of public career about this certain type of nutrition and wellness and yet really struggling with their own kind of urges behind the scenes. Totally. No, yeah. It's really interesting how also I think the way that nutrition is traditionally sold and dietetics programs are have kind of functioned for the last, you know, hundred years or however long they've been around is that it's about this sort of right quote unquote way of eating. And rather than recognizing that people have relationships with food and that it's about much more than just how you eat or what you eat and like the amounts and how much and telling people what to eat, that that doesn't actually work. So I feel like so many of us experience that cognitive dissonance where we're learning this model of just tell people what to eat. There's a right way to eat. Here it is. And then go off into the world and be healthy, you know, and it's like, why can't I do that? Why can't I just, why isn't it that simple? And it's not that simple because it's not that simple, but nobody tells us that. So I think we blame ourselves for when we're acting out ways in which it's not that simple. 
Yes. And clearly I was doing everything just as I was being taught. And ironically, was that my least healthy, the healthiest, you know, I was the least mentally and physically healthy at that time when I was doing everything, quote unquote, perfect, like the books, Mm. you know? Yeah. What happened physically? Like what were your, your physical health outcomes then? I just started to push my body over, over exercising meticulous about when and how much food, foods and food groups were going to make it to my meal times with me. I can remember my stomach growling and being so empty in my classes that it was hard to think because maybe I'd gotten up and run for a certain amount of time in the morning and then made my way to class. And the list just goes on and on of things that are not okay. And I somehow, luckily, the intuitive eating book by Lee Shresh and Evelyn Triboli fell into my lap, came across that and started to read it. And it was this moment of, this is right before my dietetic internship of, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And that's kind of where my journey to healing started. And the things started to just fall into place after that. Mm-hmm. Did you discover the book Intuitive Eating in your classes? Was Did someone introduce it to you like a professor or was it just sort of, you just happened upon it somehow? Just happened upon it. No, it was definitely not in my training or in my internship at all. So, you know, I finally, th- I was feeling so like I didn't fit in until I started reading Intuitive Eating. And I thought, maybe this profession is okay for me. <laughs> maybe I could do something with this. Yeah. So seeing that other dietitians mm-hmm. had a relationship with food that was more what you wanted gave you some hope. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, I started reading and listening to and just immersing myself in anything I could get my hands on. I started to realize what a problem my anxiety was and the ways I was coping with it were not actual skill skills. They were more unhelpful than helpful and that it was going to take something bigger than myself for a while. And, you know, that's when I I reached out to a therapist and started doing a lot of my own own work to work through all of that and started to heal. What did that process look like for you? It was messy. <laughs> <laughs> I in the same time that all the this was going on and I I tend to do things like this, do a do a whole whole bunch of things at one time. But I got married, moved across the country from Texas to Pennsylvania and started my dietetic internship all within two months of each other. Whoa, that's a lot. That's a huge change. So, you know, that's, I think, about the time I reached out for my therapist because it was just almost unbearable, the anxiety, and I was not willing to cope with it in the same ways I had been. I knew too much at that point and knew that wasn't okay. And I wanted to be better. I wanted to be better for my husband. He, he's fantastic. He's, amazing. I'm so very fortunate that we ran into each other and I wanted I wanted to be with him. And I wanted to choose that life. I wanted to choose the life where I, I help people who are struggling. And I think that's what pushed me the other way instead of a full-blown eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you sort of were able to walk back from the brink. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And how did your career unfold from there? So I, I finished my internship and I actually started as a clinical dietitian, not having enough confidence to do my own thing, not really even thinking that was possible. I had been told multiple times throughout my internship that you need so many X year number of years of experience and need to know this many doctors or physicians and to be able to even think about opening your own practice. And 
that, that was drilled into my head multiple times. And I can remember maybe two months into my clinical job and realizing this is not for me. And I was just coming home a different person every day, very negative, And it was very repetitious. And I was spending a lot of time just charting all day as as are probably familiar with. Yeah. So it was hospital work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really just having no voice and no support and felt very alone. And so I remember traveling with my husband and we were getting on a plane. This was about five months of being a dietitian. And I just said, I'm starting a practice being rather compulsive. <laughs> and I just opened a Word document and thought, what would I need to, to open a private practice? I had zero business experience. <laughs> zero. And that's where it started. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. I mean, I, I identify with that so much because also as someone who went back to school after working for a while, you know, and being out in the, the world, I was like, I'm kind of done paying my dues. You know, I paid a bunch of dues already when I went back to school and sort of traded in the life of a, a working person for a student again. And then I had to do a dietetic internship and do unpaid volunteer service, basically, like to get my training. And I was like, I'm done. At that point, I was like in my 30s as well. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I can't I can't work for anyone else. So I just opened a private practice right away as well. Yeah. I think it's something also that is really conducive to this line of work with intuitive eating and health at every size because it's not like you don't have to answer to anyone who wants you to, you know, prove that someone's lost weight or whatever kind of typical measures that are being used in hospitals or doctor's offices or weight loss centers or what have you. Right. Oh, man, exactly. And I think I was at that crossroads, too, of if this is what it's going to be like to be a dietitian, then I'm going to open a coffee shop or something. (laughs) I almost left dietetics. And then I thought, why not? You know, what do you have to lose? What do you why not try a practice? Try try entrepreneurship. And man, am I so glad. I did. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What was it like to open up your own practice? Messy again. And I had to be very careful because I think I knew a little bit more about myself at that point and knew that my anxiety and need need to please others and be perfect was going to shift somewhere. I was had built a beautiful relationship with food in my body and was still working on that and was thinking, where are those going to go? They're going to go to my work. I had to be very careful of that in this space of so many uncertainties. So it was messy. I, you know, I didn't have any mentors. I didn't really even know who to reach out to. And probably honestly at that time also was just thinking in that mentality of, I don't need help. I've got this. I think a lot of us, especially as dietitians, are in that space, not willing to even ask for help, almost maybe out of pride or competition. I'm not sure, but I do know when I did open up and get mentors and allow myself to be mentored, that's where things really became clear for me that I could do this and it was going to be okay. So one part of my business is seeing clients somewhere in the spectrum of disordered eating. And the other half is mentoring dietitians because I so wish I had had someone telling me the things that I know now. Yeah, we really need... I think mentorship and training in especially going in this sort of new direction of intuitive eating and health at every size, because that's not what's taught in our programs. No. I mean, really for all health professionals, you know, like anyone who's doing the sort of traditional health and wellness training, whether it's a dietitian, a therapist, a doctor, a health coach, 
like all of the programs are pretty much, you know, rooted in the standard weight paradigm and in diet culture. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mentorship, I think is so key to making that transition. And so you don't feel so alone. I mean, I felt really alone. I was trying to become an insurance provider. I can remember that specifically and just crying one day, crying my eyes out, just, I can't do this. Why did I even start this? You know, the the negative self-talk, you know, I can remember it being so loud that day and nearly quit again. And I, I don't want any other dietitian to feel that way because it's not that hard to open a practice. It's not that hard to do this work. You just have to believe in yourself and have someone to continue to, to push you just a little bit. It's it's not that hard, but we self-sabotage. Well, and having someone show you the ropes too, because I remember yeah. I took insurance for a while. And when I was applying to become an insurance provider, I also felt like such a huge task, you know, such a huge hurdle to overcome like this, all this paperwork and bureaucratic nonsense that I had Ugh. to do to get there. It's intimidating too. My goodness. Yeah. And it feels like if you make one wrong move, you're, you're screwed, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it, if you leave something out, it's going to ruin your whole business or something. So I definitely empathize with that feeling. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> and, you know, where was your own relationship with food and all this? Because you said the book Intuitive mm -hmm. Eating was a was a big part of your healing. Did you have to do any additional work on, you know, your relationship with food with a dietitian or with any other books or resources that you found? I didn't. Everything besides my therapist, all the, the food side and body image, I did on my own. I wish I had known of a dietitian like yourself sooner or something something like that but even just listening to your podcast and just everything i could get my hands on that was that was the most healing and i think the the bigger thing was finding something finding my place finding something that i was good at that i could make a difference and get out of my head i was you know just spending too much time focusing on me like trying to perfect my body and i needed to get out of my head i needed to go do something that matters and so you know when i started to gain a little bit of confidence and get out there and get my feet wet there was a lot less time to worry about perfecting my body or what i was eating and no one cared so why was i spending so much time on something that no one else cared about people were not coming to my office to see me because i ate perfectly they were in pain they needed help yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, a really valuable lesson there, too, is that like maybe sometimes in school or in training to, to do something, you get these myths or these beliefs about it. Like it all hinges on my body. It's all mm -hmm. about how I present myself or whatever. And then when you're out there actually doing it, like that's such a tiny, tiny percentage yeah. of your of your mental space suddenly because there's so much else to think about. Yeah. And the better care I took of myself, the more I liked myself, the more I felt comfortable. It's just your perspective shifts. Things are, There's way more important things in life. And when you start taking care of yourself and feeding yourself appropriately, you feel better and you have more energy and life starts to look a lot more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wonder too about the social aspects of it, like the idea of thin privilege or not having the outside forces telling you or reinforcing the thoughts you had in your head. Because I know for me, like one thing that in looking back on my experience, I can really both I'm grateful for, for helping me get to a place of healing and of peace with food sooner, but also I'm really 
mad about on other people's behalf because they don't have the same privilege is like that I had a really easy relationship with food in childhood and all the way up into my, you know, basically like 19, 20 years old, food wasn't really an issue for me because no one was saying your body size is wrong. You have to lose weight for your health. You know, nobody pushed a diet on me. Nobody was commenting on my size critically or anything like that. And then when I sort of drank that Kool-Aid and bought into diet culture, you know, in my early 20s, it was like I I easily fell down that rabbit hole because that's that was just lying there waiting for me like it is for everyone in the society. But when I recovered, I didn't continue to have society telling me, no, but you still need to be dieting because of your weight. That was all a mental shift that I could make for myself in recognizing like, I don't have to do this. This is a product of all these forces that have had exerted pressure on me my whole life and I I bought in and the diet was what made me binge. The diet was what made me have disordered eating and that was the real problem, not my own body or my own relationship with food to start. So that was like, it was all sort of this healing journey that I could do with therapy and on my own as well and with intuitive eating and you know, looking into other resources, but I wasn't constantly barraged. Of course, I was constantly barraged by diet culture being like, oh, try this, try that, you know, blah, blah, blah. This food's going to kill you. But it wasn't like also your body specifically, Christy Harrison, is wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a real, I think it's something that needs to be addressed in society is that having the sort of tools and groundwork laid for you to be able to recover fully and have a balanced relationship with food is more available to people who are in thin bodies to start with. And that is fucked up. Like that should not be oh, the case, you know? 100% that resonates with me. You're right. I have thin privilege. And so no one, no physician had ever said to me, you do need to lose weight. No one said anything about my weight. No one said anything so much that no one caught how much I was suffering with anxiety, right? Because I I, I was privileged. I, I grew up in a family that was privileged. I went to a large university. You know, n- no one caught any of this because I was supposed to be perfect, right? On the outside, I was supposed to have this health. And you're right. What if what if I was in a larger body? Would I have would I have gone straight to full full blown eating disorder? Would I have got even gotten treatment? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really, you know, it's like the the road not traveled or something. Mm-hmm. We can never really know that, right? But but it is interesting to think too that like even people who are in privileged bodies in our society, as we construct quote unquote ideal body sizes now, and of course that's historically that there's a historical context to that too, right? Because like 200 years ago, that was not the case. 200 years ago, larger bodies were prized Mm -hmm. and everybody was going for that, right? But even folks who have that privilege, who have thin privilege, can suffer because of the assumption that a thin body equals a healthy body and a healthy mind, Mm -hmm. right? That like there can't be anything going on that's messed up in your relationship with food because you're not emaciated, like what we picture as an eating disorder in our society, and you're not in a larger body. So you don't have that quote unquote problem as society constructs it. Right. And so everybody does suffer at the hands of this diet culture assumption that body size dictates health or unhealth. Yeah. I just flew under the radar and everything I did was completely quote unquote normal. Yep. And this is a scary part. Yeah. 
I wonder too, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, you're saying you did pre-med. I wonder mm-hmm. what the culture was like there that might have sort of emphasized more disordered behaviors around food and wellness too. Because I've talked to a number of physicians, not for the podcast, although we do have a physician coming on soon, but just in life who, who really have struggled with this stuff as well. Yeah. And I'd, I hadn't really at that point gotten into too many of the medical classes. And I think I was I, I wasn't even forming solid relationships with people at that point in undergrad. So I don't remember there necessarily being, nothing was really being pushed on me in my classes at that point, I don't think. Yeah, so it wasn't really talked about. No, no, not in class. You know, that would have just been with my my roommates and friends that I did have. I can remember my friends, uh, sorry, my roommates getting slim fast for the house. And I can, I won't even go into details with with all of the things that we promised each other we were going to do through college. But that's, I think, where more of the the influence was than the actual classes at that point. Because again, at that point, I was taking just chemistries and stats and all the math classes and nothing really... It wasn't until my <laughs> dietetics courses. That's where it you know, got worse for me. Yeah, that's where it sort of hit the fan. Uh, yeah. And so when you when you came out of that then, when you started working with people to heal their own relationships with food and your private practice. How did that affect your own relationship with food and your own healing? Yeah, I think it just made it 10 times stronger, especially as I started to just gather my own clinical experience and seeing what worked for people and what didn't. And I'll be honest, when I first started, I was still trying to dip my toes, I think, in both both sides of the fence or both puddles where I, I still had my scale out and I was still weighing people, but trying to approach it from this non-diet place, which I know so many dietitians, this is this is where they start. And anybody who is in this place, so much compassion for you. And you're not alone in that and trying to do both. It's hard. But what I can tell you from that experience is it doesn't work. It doesn't work to solely be weight loss promoting. It doesn't work to put both feet toe in each puddle. You know, neither of them work. What started to work for my clients and where I started to really excel and my practice grew was when I let all of that go and was able to approach it more as a team member with my clients instead of a teacher teaching down to them. Started to treat them each as individuals and figuring out how can we figure out what is your definition of health? What is going to make you the healthiest? And that didn't come with weighing them ever or counting calories. So it was interesting just in my own experience, lived experience of working with people, figuring out what works and what doesn't. And then of course, pairing that with everything I was reading and knew about all of like Linda Bacon's work and all of the books that I was reading. And it it just it developed from there into a, a full non-diet weight inclusive practice. Yeah, that transition I think is so is so messy like you said mm. because it's it's so natural for a lot of us to have for people making that transition to start with a foot on each side of the fence or whatever, right? It's hard not to have to like feel like you're holding on to the weight loss paradigm a little bit or not even recognize how you're holding on to it in some cases because it's just what we're steeped in and that's what we knew going into the into the work. So 
you know, making that transition, I think, is is always going to be a little messy in diet culture unless people happen to stumble upon an academic program that is health at every size from the start, which is few and far between. But yeah, it's a very understandable part of this process to have to make that transition. So what did that look like for you in terms of how you ran your business and how you marketed yourself and all of that good stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying because you are not only trying to get on your feet as a clinician and you know gain confidence there and, and the skill set to work with people on different levels, but you are also trying to run a business which needs to be profitable and everything around you that's profitable is selling weight loss. And so you're stuck in this, again, almost that dissonance, right? Like you have this thing you believe in so much and not only believe in, but have seen work better for your clients, actually help people. And then on the other hand, you're running this business and you need it to be successful. And because you want to see more of these clients, but you're not selling the weight loss that everyone else around you is. So it really takes standing in your spotlight, in the uncertainty and going full heartedly after what you believe. And that takes understanding fully for one, who is your ideal client and what is the message you're trying to get to them and how do you do that effectively? It takes being fearless or at least pretending you're fearless <laughs> and doing it anyway. It takes being okay with being different and you're starting to write content. You're starting to post different things on your social media and just waiting kind of for that backlash to come after you. But you know, for me, fortunately, I didn't get much of that backlash. Instead, I, I got a lot of people that said, yes, and liked the direction my business was going. And so I kept doing it. But you have to, you have to know it's going to be messy and you have to be okay with criticism. And, you know, for me, that hump to get over that, I mean, that was a mountain in itself because criticism had been my enemy my entire life, right? The fear of criticism. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like it was almost a trial by fire for all the yeah. things that you had already struggled with. Yeah, it's, it's so ironic. And, you know, I love looking back on this and just seeing the growth because it is, it's awesome. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I really identify with that too. I feel like my struggles with anxiety and figuring out who I was and being comfortable or at least okay with uncertainty and discomfort and potential criticism, those were all huge challenges for me. And so running my own business and especially my own business centered around these countercultural sort of ideas about food and body was a real experience that I think helped me overcome some of those long-term challenges or at least address them and learn how to work with them, you know? Yes. Same for me. Oh, that resonates with me a lot. I mean, I think we're drawn to things that we want to have mastery over for some deep reason. You know, that's what my sort of hypothesis was in in starting this podcast. And especially when I started talking to other dietitians and health professionals about their struggles with food, because I was like, well, I was drawn into this work because of my issues with food. I think a lot of other people were too. And then I ended up talking to a lot of people who had a very similar experience. And so, you know, it really does sort of lead me to believe that we're attracted to the things that are going to actually, hopefully, in a lot of cases, help us grow and sort of master the things that we struggle with. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason There's a reason we go through everything, every struggle. And I think if you continue to look at your struggles that way, instead of why is this happening to me? Why me? Instead of, you know, what am I going to learn from this? And who am I going to be able to help on the other side of it because of it? Because it's happening to me for a reason. 
I think that thought process or that mentality shift was extremely instrumental in helping me get through some of the hardest times. Mm. Yeah, that's an aspect of resilience, right? Like we were talking mm. about Brene Brown, and I think it was she who said that, you know, one of the things that really the hallmarks that sort of characterize people who are the most resilient in her research is people who are able to do like the meaning making out of their experiences, you know, make meaning of something that was a struggle or suffering and, you know, use that to sort of propel them forward. Yes. Oh. We could probably do a whole podcast on Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. She's <laughs> fascinating to me. I mean, I I love her work so much, and I love I love the research she bases things on, and you know the connections she makes about different areas of self acceptance and self worth and valuing yourself. But she also seems to be stuck in diet culture. You know, like I have mm. I have seen a few little asides in her books where she talks about her weight, you know, and she she struggles with it or worries about it. And it's so interesting to me. I mean, this is like a whole tangent too, but I feel like she and a number of the other really wonderful sort of leaders in the self-acceptance movement also struggle with diet culture and have vestiges of diet culture pop their heads up in their writing and their work to the point where I can never wholeheartedly recommend any of these wonderful books that have helped me and so many of my clients without saying like trigger warning for potential fat phobia because that's just the world we live in. So yeah. And you, you wonder if they'll make that connection if, if she'll ever fully make that connection. She does talk a little bit about her history of dieting in her newest book, just a little bit. And I think that's the only part of the book where she talks about dieting. But yeah, it is really interesting. Maybe it's moving into the rear view for her. I don't know. I don't know. I love her to death. So I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's worth mentioning that just to sort of say like, I feel like any cultural, any meme, any book, any any resource that you could come across that you could potentially use for for great value in this society, unfortunately might have those diet culture pitfalls. And that's not to say to scrap it all or that there's nothing of value there. It's it's to say, like, just remember that everybody is swimming in the same stew here. And if you see that in a book that is otherwise valuable to you or a resource, a podcast, whatever, don't assume that it means that you have to go back to dieting because that person said it, you know, just assume actually that it means that person's caught in diet culture too, you know, and maybe have compassion for them. And of course, if it's hurtful and fat phobic, like you don't have to read it or take it in or use it as a resource. And you can absolutely say like, I'm going to keep myself safe and walk away from this if that's what you need, you know? So like everybody is welcome to do that for themselves, of course, but just sort of I think it's important and and helpful to recognize that the triggers that we see around us are not there because dieting is the right thing to do. They're there because dieting is the culturally conditioned thing to do that everybody thinks they should do. And many, many culture makers are victims of diet culture themselves. Yes. And I think this is one of my favorite parts to get to with clients when they've, you know, gotten past a lot of the disordered behaviors and they're on a pretty okay path, right? And they're doing pretty good. And this part of the work is so important. And where I think traditional dietetics leaves off is helping them to, you know, just because they're eating regular scheduled meals and getting all the food groups and being flexible doesn't mean their healing is done, right? And that's why we're not just teachers of 
eat these food groups, right? Because they have to then go out into the world and be strong enough and competent enough and feel confident in what their definition of health and what works for them that they can face these things, read these books and enjoy them and get things from them and not get stuck back into that diet cycle because of it. They can see something like that, a diet being mentioned and say, but that's not for me. And their their helpful, helpful and healthy voice is strong enough that it is able to be much louder than the unhelpful voice. And that's where, you know, I hope and you know, hope that all my clients can get to. And this is the part of the work that is so important for so many of them. Mm, yes, that's so important because we're going to have to navigate this culture, right? We all do yeah. go back into the world and have to have to be in it. So what are some things that you find helpful for people in navigating the culture? Oh, such a good question. I think this is where you can utilize some of that science and facts. I think maybe that's could be something that is delved into too quickly in nutrition counseling. So you see your new client and you start telling them, all the science and why they need to eat the foods. And I think this is almost better at this stage so that they understand, no, I do need carbohydrates and I need them multiple times a day. And this is why, because this is what they do for my body. And they're able to be, you know, had enough lived experiences from there to say something like, no, whenever I cut out carbs, I know this is what happens for my body. So it's it's more of they, you know, using that science and their lived experience in their healing. I mean, I don't know, for me at least, that's been very helpful for my clients to work through some of the factual things at that point. And I think that's obviously why that chapter in Intuitive Eating, the gentle nutrition's at the very end. And if I could, you know, if I had any advice for new practitioners to, to try and remember that we so badly know so much science and it's the most beneficial for them, I think, when they're in this more nourished stage and they can use it to help strengthen their autonomy in this world. Mm-hmm. That's a really great point. I love that because I find that to be very true as well. When people are ready to hear the science and ready to take it in, they can use that to like push back against the diet culture messages yeah. and voices out there. But if they hear it too early, it can very much just get subsumed into the diet mentality. And then it's mm-hmm. it's just another way to sort of beat yourself up or follow the rules or whatever, rather than being truly about nourishing yourself and pushing back against the myths. So yeah, like I think to me, rejecting the diet mentality is, I think the book is so beautifully structured because mm-hmm. it really is rejecting the diet mentality has to come first. Like that's oh, yeah. the groundwork for everything. And then gentle nutrition has to come last because otherwise it just gets, you know, eaten up by the diet mentality and everything that comes in between all the other principles, I think really have a natural progression and make so much sense the way that they're presented. Totally. Yeah. You got to start with what are you surrounding yourself with? What are you allowing into your life? How are you keeping yourself safe? Yeah. Really important. And those are all, of course, key components to rejecting the diet mentality. Yeah. And in terms of like, you know, I'm curious that your work around disordered eating of a really sort of significant degree versus the sort of spectrum of disordered eating that most people fall on somewhere along the line, right? Where would you introduce intuitive eating to someone who is really struggling and really in it with an eating disorder, for example, versus someone who's coming out of maybe chronic dieting history, but never had such a significant full-blown eating disorder? Mm, Such a good question. And yeah, it's very tricky 
that line is very tricky and it's a it's a gray area that many clinicians i think it feels very uncomfortable you know how do i get my client who's in a full blown eating disorder to full intuitive eating and trying to do it too soon if you think about a full blown eating disorder many processes of the body are not working correctly so you you know almost every principle of intuitive eating it's not going to work uh, the hunger fullness scale a lot of those things aren't going to work when you aren't even eating on a regular basis, getting an adequate volume of food to be able to feel something like hunger fullness. And you have no way of knowing the difference between a preference and an eating disorder voice. And you feel you have no choices because this voice in your head is telling you everything that you should be doing. And trying to introduce intuitive eating at that place is largely unhelpful and almost maybe more harmful because sure, they can just say, oh, I wasn't hungry, so I didn't eat. Right. It becomes an excuse for restriction. Yeah. So it is very tricky to navigate. Yeah. I really like that you highlighted that because I think people who are new to the podcast or people who've been listening for a while but are sort of getting their intuitive eating information filtered through these conversations and and not necessarily working through it step by step, like it, it can sort of easily be missed that a full-blown eating disorder is not the place to do a full expression of intuitive eating. There's certainly principles of intuitive eating that you can bring into eating disorder recovery at any stage. Sure. At any stage of recovery, right? Like rejecting the diet mentality. Anybody can start to do that. Anybody can work on that. Yeah. And that's super healing for a full-blown eating disorder too. But but yeah, the hunger and fullness piece is so tricky. Yes. Yep. And I think, and I don't know, this is just something I've experienced in working with other dietitians is they get so excited and they they love this, this space of intuitive eating and they've really started to dive in and learn everything as much as possible. And they so badly want to market their self as I only do intuitive eating. I'm an intuitive eating coach. And for a couple of reasons, that becomes tricky because you are trying to reach people who are different places in their recovery, or maybe maybe they're just a chronic dieter, or maybe they have a full-blown eating disorder, but it can be tricky if they are a full-blown eating disorder and come after you saying, oh, I'm ready for intuitive eating, and, and maybe you don't fully get to assess them if intuitive eating is all that's on your mind. And I, the other problem with that too is a lot of people don't have that language. They don't, they don't understand what intuitive eating is, and it has quickly become trendy. And whenever you're marketing yourself in this space, I think it's important to get your pain point across or the the ideal client's pain point. You know, what are you trying to help them with instead of this like just charging out there, I'm an intuitive eating dietitian. That's all I do is non-diet intuitive eating, which is great, right? It's great. But this is how you market yourself in in a non-diet way without losing business is trying to reach people by hitting their pain point of, you know, I help people maybe learn to eat normally, or I help people to get off that train of trying every single diet and find some consistency in their life, find their own definition of health. This is the type of language that you want to get out there because that can be helpful for anybody at any stage. Totally. Yeah. The the idea of where do you want to go? Like, what do you want mm-hmm. your relationship with mm-hmm. food to look like? I think can resonate with people yes. all across the spectrum because they can sort of see what they really want or envision or imagine. I'm trying not to use ableist language, but yes. <laughs> imagine what they really want, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the missing piece for people that so badly want to work in this. You know, you don't have to sell weight loss to make it work. And you can be inclusive for everybody that you want to work with. Language is just so important. 
as you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I know. We've had many conversations about that for sure, like language and and sort of, you know, rooting out the diet mentality vestiges in your marketing and being able to position yourself as an intuitive eating provider without letting the diet mentality creep in and sort of get a hold of that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I think that's one of the number one questions I get is how do you how do you market? How do you get your clients into your office, you know, if you're not going to promise them weight loss? And it's tough, you know? It is, but and as this becomes more and more trendy, you can't you can't do the thing where you talk about weight loss and intuitive eating on your marketing material. It's not going to end up helping you in the long run. Yeah. I know the the sort of straddling the fence is yeah. extremely problematic. And to me, the biggest problem with it is that it still reinforces weight stigma. It allows the idea of weight loss to be sort of a, a carrot that is dangled in front of people and that it reinforces the idea that weight loss is something people should want, right? Instead of calling it out and saying like weight loss is something you're made to want by diet culture and we're mm -hmm. not going to do that here. We're not going to pursue that here. But I think it's it's tough when providers themselves haven't always gone through the whole process of unearthing the diet mentality and how it's hanging on for them. Yes. You know, so I'm curious your thoughts about that sort of transition of like people who've had a complicated relationship with food, people who've had an eating disorder or really disordered eating history or been chronic dieters who are recognizing that that's not what they want to do for themselves. And also they want to shift their, when they're healthcare providers, they want to shift their practices in a more intuitive eating direction as well. How do people navigate that bridge between like the personal and the professional? Yes. And I'm so glad we're shedding some light on this. And I think there needs to be more awareness around this because I think there are a lot of professionals, dietitians included that have struggled or maybe currently still are, as you were saying. And I think they feel very insecure about their position in helping other people and don't want to speak up that maybe they are currently struggling or have because of maybe what their coworkers are going to think of them, their colleagues. And I can remember one specific instance in my internship when a preceptor told us, if you've ever had an eating disorder or a problem with food, then you have no business being a dietitian. And that was that very oh. black and white, just like you're doomed forever. <laughs> you know, I think very differently than that because... People who have a lived experience with this stuff are going to make the best mentors and coaches for people who are struggling. And yes, there is a lot to learn about when to disclose and self-disclosure and how it can be helpful and how it can be harmful. And you even have to get to a place where you can self-disclose, but you have an opportunity to be really, really good because of your lived experience and help a lot of people. So that would be such a shame if that were to be the determining factor, whether you could work in disordered eating or eating disorders. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way. Like I've heard, unfortunately, very outdated ideas about eating disorders be espoused by people working at treatment centers, you know, people mm -hmm. saying like, well, of course, if someone has an eating disorder, they're always going to have an eating disorder and blah, 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 you know, and it's like, actually, that's not true. And we do have science to the contrary now. Plus, we have this amazing movement of clinicians who have lived experience and are speaking out about it and using that to great benefit of their clients and of people they they reach. 
So yeah, I think if anyone comes across that kind of messaging, it's like, that's a really outdated way of seeing things. That's a really black and white way of seeing things, like you said. In some cases, the people saying those things have their own issues or just don't understand and aren't up on the research or are really rooted in diet culture themselves. And so consider the source, I guess. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Everybody's got their own stuff, you know. This is where mentorship and supervision specifically comes into play. Man, I don't know where I would be without my clinical supervision, both group and peer and individual. The amount I've learned from that, which for any clinician or non-clinician listening that doesn't isn't familiar with supervision, just getting a dietitian who's more experienced and knowledgeable than you in this area and having someone to take your cases to or your personal struggles to so that they can best help you, it's invaluable. And I don't know why it's not required in our field of work. I know. It's really, it's much more common, I think, among psychotherapists. I think that's where the model comes from, you know, of having supervision from a mentor. But it's so necessary, especially when you're doing the work on helping people heal their issues with food, because that can, of course, bring up stuff for the clinician, too, you know, that if you've gone through it and you're now helping people recover, there's a lot to navigate there. You know, there's a lot of potential pitfalls. There's a lot of areas where you just might need some support or reassurance that you're doing the right thing. You know, a lot of what I've done in supervision and I had my my supervisor, my longtime supervisor and mentor, Lisa Pearl, was on the number of weeks ago now by the time this comes out. But one thing that I worked a lot with her on was just sort of like trusting my clinical intuition, you know, and bringing things to her that I had done and said and, and say like, did that sound right? Did that sit well with you? Did it, did I do a good job with that case? And having her be like, yes, you did great, you know, and just sort of providing reassurance and sort of understanding that what I was doing was okay was a huge piece of being able to be comfortable and confident in my work in this field. Yes. Because I think there's, you know, there's just a lot of fear and it gets reinforced by people saying things like, well, if you've ever had an eating disorder, then you're never going to be a good dietitian. So, oh, yes. Yeesh. Ah, and I can remember my first couple supervision sessions and trying to be that perfectionist, right? And this supervision really helps you to to let go a little bit and to share things that you might, I don't know. I remember being almost like embarrassed. Should I tell her that I said this in the session? Should I tell her that this is how I handled it? Because I don't think that was right. And so kind of getting over that. And again, going back to allowing yourself to be mentored, because if you don't, you're never going to grow. And we've all been there. We have all said something that maybe we could have said in a different way or handled a case we didn't know how to handle or whatever. Or if there was counter-transference coming in the session, like you were mentioning, you need someone to take that to. And someone like your supervisor, who's not going to judge that situation because they've been there. Yeah, no, totally. Having someone to just say, it's okay, this is this is common, I understand, you're not alone, is such a huge part of doing this work. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious too, like your thoughts about people who are recovering or recovered. When is it appropriate or helpful both for the clinician and the people they're coaching or working with for them to start doing this kind of work because I know that's a that's a tricky line right and it can be yeah. can be really problematic if you're still recovering yourself or working on your own you know rooting out your own diet mentality and making peace with food for yourself then trying to work with clients and teach them but you're still in the midst of your process can be problematic at best and really really difficult or 
triggering to the people you're working with at worst. So what would you say to someone who is, you know, recovering and maybe wants to do this work at some point? Man, I don't, I don't have all of the answers and I don't have a specific good answer for this because like you said, it is such a gray line. But I think that it's very important to understand that you can only take people as far as you've been and done the work yourself. So maybe there you've done a lot of work in the area of people who have, you would feel comfortable working with people who have been just kind of that chronic dieter, but a full-blown eating disorder, someone telling you all the intimate details of everything they're doing every day and their disorder might be too much. And so for me personally, I think if you know how far you've been and how far maybe you're continuing that education for yourself and that learning and that healing, you should know a place where you, how far you've been and how far you could take someone. And maybe you have people you can refer patients to that aren't something you're ready to work with. And just having that self-awareness, what's going to come up in a session that is going to cause you some angst or cause you some anxiety or you know, cause you to start thinking, where are you going to stop being able to listen to the client? And where are you going to start being concerned about yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great tip. I love that. I also want to say like, because I've had kind of gone back and forth and sort of my ideal client and who I'm working with primarily over the course of my career and have found that sometimes it shifts, right? Sometimes it's not even just about your own stuff that you're bringing to the table, but like what really lights you up and what really gives you joy to, to work with in your career. So, you know, I've sort of shifted in my work more recently to work kind of just with the, the sort of later stages of recovery, you know, the chronic dieting or the people who are recovered from behaviors for like a year or more, you you know, mm. from an eating disorder, but are doing those later stages of recovery, really the deeper mental work and the intuitive eating work to fully make peace with food. You know, that sort of last stage of laying to rest the diet mentality for good and really getting rid of it is kind of what lights my fire these days. And that didn't used to be the case. I didn't or I didn't know that about myself until doing the work for several years, you know. And so at first I was working with full-blown eating disorders and sort of sitting with and being with people's significantly disordered behaviors, which taught me so much about how to effectively help people and how to do this work without triggering people. And it was so invaluable. And I I love so many of the clients I worked with in that regard. But, you know, I just realized kind of later as I moved on in my career that it wasn't it wasn't where I wanted to be. Yes. So I think that's another thing too, is to sort of recognize like, that's okay. If you as a clinician have preferences or desires to work with a specific niche and you niche down or find your niche even more specifically as you keep going, like that's awesome. And that's not something to to have to apologize for or feel guilty about either. You can transition in your career as you go and, and you know, work with the population that's really speaking to you at that moment. I love that. Very, very, very true. I love that a lot. Thanks. It's a wonderful answer. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, it took me a while too to sort of feel like confident in making that transition. And I had definitely to do some work and supervision around feeling like it was okay. And I didn't have to be guilty for sort of abandoning this one niche and and focusing more on this other niche. And so it, it I think it's, you know, an evolution and we all sort of have to do the work on our journeys to feel confident in our choices, maybe. But it it was something really 
profound and, and nice to learn that I could make a bit of a shift like that and and feel even more fulfilled by the work I, that I do. So Yes. And I think that's also that for clinicians, that self-care piece, taking care of yourself and so that you don't burn out. I love my job so much that I would be so sad if I were to take on too much or feel I had to do things a certain way and burn out and then not be able to do this work. So, you know, part of self-care in this realm of nutrition is making sure that you do have that fire and that you aren't overdoing it or doing too many saying yes to too many things that that you don't need to. You don't need to say yes to everything and that boundary setting is an incredibly hard lesson to learn or navigate through. Oh yeah, boundary setting is such Whoa. a challenge. I think Whoa. we'll always be doing that one. <laughs> totally, totally. But it's so relevant to the work with anyone who's making peace with food and and on this journey. I feel like it's so tied up in setting boundaries against diet culture and setting boundaries to take care of yourself in this in this world that's going to sort of drag you in a non-self-care direction, right? It's constant work that we all need to be doing, but it's so so important. Yes. Oh, I love this. This is Yay. good. <laughs> yeah, boundaries are are really exciting me lately. It's it's mm-hmm. you know, certainly sort of the taking people as far as you've gone yourself. It's like in the last six months or a year, I think I've I've reached a new level with boundaries where I'm like actually pretty comfortable setting them. And after a few big trial by fire experiences, it was like, fuck this. Like fuck yeah. apologizing, fuck politeness, totally. fuck being, you know, trying to like always make nice with people who are who are don't deserve that from me or whatever like you know just like no I'm gonna I'm gonna set some very necessary boundaries and it feels so good I was gonna say isn't that the most liberating feeling to stand up for yourself like that and you know whatever voice was going on in your head about or outside of your head from someone else of what you can and can't do or should or shouldn't be doing damn it feels good oh it feels so good it's like yeah i feel like i can do anything you know once once i have that sort of confidence in like yeah i did that and i didn't die you know i did i right? went through that and it was okay i felt bad i might have cried while writing an email one time or two or <laughs> whatever. But you know what? I made it. And now I feel that much more assured that I can I can do this and I can take care of myself. It's a good one for anybody starting out in entrepreneurship or as a clinician. It's a big one. Yeah, totally. I think having support around it too is so key. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to the idea of supervision and mentorship, I think yes. that I would not have felt that confident in setting boundaries or even known that it was a thing, you know, until doing this work and having this kind of mentorship that I've had. So I have a feeling my practice would look very different if I had never built the confidence to set boundaries, even around things like financial policies in your practice. And, and you know, just that that's a simple example to use, but knowing that it's okay to charge someone when they don't show up for their appointment. Just even a simple thing like that. It's amazing when you put those policies in place and you you mean business and it's nothing against the other person, the client coming in, but it's just setting those boundaries of let's respect each other's time and that's how we're going to get the most work done together. And it feels good. It's not mean. It feels really good. Totally. Yeah, I think there's so much 
socialization that happens, particularly with women and femmes and anyone socialized as a woman, like that we're supposed to make nice, we're supposed to not hurt other people's feelings. And if someone starts to seem upset in reaction to something we're doing, I think the natural inclination is like to take it back, right? Apologize. Yeah. Yeah. And take care of the person and be like, well, what can I, you know, let's see what I can work out and start to bend your own rules, but, or I shouldn't say rules, but, you know, bend your own boundaries or open up your own boundaries. And sometimes that's not what needs to happen. You know, sometimes sitting with the discomfort of someone else being upset at you, but you doing what you need to do to take care of yourself anyway, is Mm -hmm. the best thing for both parties. Absolutely. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to face that lesson and learn from it. Yeah, it comes up in all kinds of different ways. I actually just had it come up right before we got on the phone today. Like, oh, someone sent me an email that I was just like, really? Are you kidding Mm -hmm. me right now? And the sort of immediate feeling that I get sometimes when people send me things that that feel like a real violation of boundaries or that they're sort of on the attack is I start to get really ruminative and thinking like, oh, God, what am I going to say back? And I need to stand up for myself, you know, and I get this fight or flight sort of like my heart's beating faster. I'm tensing up all of the physiological symptoms of being really like activated. And actually, it was so healing to just have a conversation with you and be like, I'm just going to stay present here. I'm going to come back to this conversation, come back to my body. And like now thinking about that email in the context of our boundaries conversation, I'm like, yeah, I don't have to answer that. (laughs) You know, that's great. It's powerful to sort of be reminded and be just be brought back again and again to this, the sense of how you can be present and not have to react to things. Yes, that reactive versus active. And I think the more you do that and, and practice with that, the more in the situation you can act or the sooner you can act instead of react. And it does, it takes a lot of work for those of us, like you were saying, who are easily or very sensitive or easily feeling and get anxious really easy. And it, it just takes practice to to be able to calm yourself and act instead of react. That's that's it. Totally. That's, yeah, acting instead of reacting, which I think goes back to like everything we've been talking about, yes. you know, both with making peace with food and, and sort of not having to act on the diet mentality thoughts or the eating disorder thoughts, right? And let there be some space between the thought and the action. And then also with business and running a business, which is full of those kinds of triggers too, where you think like, oh God, it's a fire. I have to put it out, you know? And what if you could just take a pause and not have to react right away and sort of be in a position of more agency when you go to take care of something? Yes. So good. (laughs) Mm, Love it. Oh my God. Well, I could continue this conversation forever, but I want to be mindful of your time as well. So tell us about your practice and where people can find out more about you. Thank you. I, um, my practice is Inspired Nutrition and it's spelled inspired with just an RD at the end, like our credentials. So nice. Inspired Nutrition. And I'm on all social media as H Goodrich RD. And that's Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's where you can find me. And um, I, for any of you dietitians, clinicians, helping professionals or dietitians-to-be, maybe you're in school, who are considering being in this space of entrepreneurship and are looking for support, we have a Facebook group that is welcoming to any of you. Again, you do not already have to be a professional and it's called Inspired to Seek. We can link to it 
if Christy would be so kind in the show notes. Absolutely. Inspired to Seek on Facebook. And it's just a great space to connect with other people who are going through exactly what you're going through and find the support that you need. I love it. Yeah, I love all your work on social media. You do such a great job with it. So I'm going to link to all of that stuff in the show notes and people should definitely check out your work and learn more. Thank you so much. Thank you, Haley. It's a pleasure talking with you. Uh, It has been so wonderful to be here, Christy. Thank you so much. So that is our show. Before you go, I want to give you a couple of free resources to help heal your relationship with food. First, you can get all the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes at christyharrison.com slash 128 for episode 128. That's christyharrison.com slash 128. If you're looking for some practical tips to launch your anti-diet journey, grab my free quick start guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. This episode was brought to you by M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling in both plus sizes and straight sizes. All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an M.M. stylist will work one-on-one with you to build your work wardrobe and send you a bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories. Once your bento arrives, you have four days to try everything on. Keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O dot com. Thanks again so much to Haley Goodrich for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. To help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message, please share this episode and the podcast as a whole with all your friends and family. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can just click on the three dots at the bottom right corner of your screen and then click share episode at the bottom of the drop-down menu. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Saroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house?